The following sermon is by Kenny Jones, Associate Pastor of Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 9 o'clock a.m. every Sunday morning. If you have any questions, please email us at info at capitalcommunitychurch.com. We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. Well, good evening. It is a great evening. I hope everybody is doing well tonight. And we are continuing our sermon series through the Ten Commandments. And let me give you guys a little bit of a roadmap of where we're going the next few weeks. Number one is this. We are, tonight will be our last uh, teaching service for 2021. And then next Sunday on the 19th, we are going to have an evening service, but it's going to be our carol sing. And so I'm going to invite all of you to come back, but also to invite friends and family and guests, co-workers, anybody to join you, because it's just an opportunity for us to sing Christmas carols. And then Grant is going to speak on some of the carols, not all of them, and just talk about the theological significance and as well as the biblical significance of why we sing songs like that. Jake did a good job of setting up, for example, We Three Kings, because it really does tell the whole story of the birth of Christ all the way to his atoning work on the cross and his resurrection. And so that's what Grant will do. He'll expound a little bit on these carols. And so again, I'm going to invite you to, and so next Sunday night, at 5 p.m. right here in our, right here in the sanctuary. And then we'll pick up the evening service in January, and I will finish our Ten Commandments sermon series, Lord willing, the 1st of February. And then Grant will pick it up from there. And he's actually going to be doing a series on the honor of God. And he's already been, we, he and I have been talking already about what he's planning and sketching out his outline for the next few weeks here in the spring. And so he'll be talking about the honor of God. So, but tonight, we are looking at the seventh commandment, and you should have received an outline as you walked in here this morning, excuse me, this evening, and it's just on that black stand there. If you didn't, you can, you can uh, walk out there here in a moment and get it. But if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask if you will, flip over to Exodus chapter 20, Exodus chapter 20, and tonight we are looking at verse 14, Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, and I'm going to read this brief verse tonight, and then we will begin to unpack God's Word. So if you will, Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, listen along with me in God's Word. You shall not commit adultery. That's short. That's short. All y'all are thinking, I wish your, you know, your verses on Sunday be a little short, Kenny. Um, but let me read it again. You shall not commit adultery. Exodus 20, verse 14. If you will, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to lead us this evening in our time together through his word. Bow your heads with me. Father, we are grateful for the gift of grace you've given to us even now in this moment as we walk together through your word. Lord, teach us through your word. And Father, help us to realize the importance of marriage, Lord, the sin of adultery, Lord, the gift of sex, relationships, Lord, things that go within the confines of the seventh commandment. Father, we truly need you now. So teach us and continue to take your word implant it, apply it to our hearts and our lives, so, Lord, that we can live, Lord, a life of holiness and above reproach. Lord, we love you. We pray these things always in Christ's good and holy name. Amen. So, it doesn't take you long to be able to flip over your phone, TV, news, anything of that nature, and to see some sexual act, some man or woman dressed in a scandalous way, and promote it right before your eyes, right? It doesn't really take long at all. You can look just at the evening news. In fact, I was, I've been trying to get in a, as I've been studying the Ten Commandments, do things I don't normally do, which is watch the six o'clock news. But even in the six o'clock news, the commercials that are advertised, there is lewd behavior and sexual immorality portrayed even during that hour, where probably most Americans are, whether here in Raleigh or across this nation, are watching or catching up on local news or national or international affairs. But it's right there in front of us. As I was preparing for the sermon over the last couple of weeks, I was reading one statistic which will shock you like it shocked me, that, that kids under the age of 10 will probably come over, excuse me, will probably look at 
and be able to see over within, I forget the mediums that they described, but over a thousand plus images of sexual behavior taking place. Before 10 years old, their eyes are seeing that. And that's probably one statistic out of many that there are out there that are, are they're really prescribing what our kids are able to see. And as we know through, I don't have it in my pocket, but cell phones now are so easily accessible to be able to have information at your fingertips, but as well as the reality of sexual perversion and morality are so easy just right there on the palm of your hand, right? On your phone where no one can see. That's the danger that we live in. But the, the reason that we have to address this is because that's exactly the heart of this commandment. The seventh commandment goes directly to this idea of sexual perversion and immorality because that's exactly what adultery is. And that's what we see here in the Ten Commandments. And we have to see quickly from God's Word that He takes sin, excuse me, the sin of adultery very seriously. You may remember in Exodus, excuse me, Genesis chapter 20, you remember when Abraham and Sarah are on the first kind of couple of weeks and months of their journey to the promised land, and remember they enter into the kingdom of Egypt and see King Elimelech, and remember he finds Sarah and he says, wow, she's, she's a pretty woman, so he, he takes her as his own, and remember right before that, you may remember that Abraham tells Sarah, hey, don't tell me you're my wife, tell me you're my sister, that way it may go well for me and you. But you remember that story, pretty quickly that night, Elimelech realizes something has gone terribly wrong. His kingdom, his household comes under the judgment of God. And then he comes out the next day saying, what have you done? And he calls this the great sin, the act of adultery that could have taken place with Sarah. And that's exactly what it is. It is a great sin when adultery does take place. And so tonight what I want us to do is I want to look at three points with us this evening. And I'm going to look at number one, I want us to see how God has given us the gift of sex. Number two, I want us to look at why marriage should be, should be considered holy. But then number three, I want us to look at why relationships matter. Those are the three points I want us to look at tonight. And you are noticing probably in your outline, even if this is your first time with us, I usually give you fill in the blanks, but I'm not this time. I'm going to make you listen along with me. And so, um, but the reason why is, just being put on the cards on the table. As I was studying this myself, I realized there was so much information at hand. And all the commandments that we have been studying over the last few weeks are all serious. But when you look at adultery, there are so many practical applications and scriptural um, implication and imperatives that we need to take heed and look at. And so instead of the fill in the blank and as you know, I've been getting ahead of myself, and so now I have to go back two steps for y'all to fill in the blank. I wanted y'all to have everything before you, and so that you can follow along with me. So, and that's exactly what we're going to be doing tonight, is so you can follow along with me through the outline, as well as continue to take notes as well. But I want us to look at this morning, excuse me, I keep saying that, this morning, this evening, the first point, which is the gift of sex, the gift of sex. The Hebrew for adultery is quite simple. And you can see that in your outline. It is the act of committing adultery. <laughs> that really is the Hebrew word. But another way we can say it, and the phrase that we can understand, I put this in your outline as well, is for us to understand marriage infidelity. That's another phrase that we can use to understand adultery. But the key word we need to understand here within the confines of adultery is, I've already said it twice, and that is marriage. Marriage is within that box, the parameter that we have to see here within the act of adultery. That's how we can understand why God takes us so serious, because he takes marriage and the institution of marriage very seriously. Philip Ryken, I put this in your outline as well, he says, the primary purpose of this commandment is to protect adultery. The primary purpose of this commandment is to protect adultery. And so within the context of the, <clears throat> the seventh commandment, sex must be seen in light of what scripture says how it's to be obeyed and practiced within the confines of marriage. 
And so we have to understand that sex truly is a gift from the Lord, but we also have to understand it in light of the seventh commandment. And I know that a lot of times, especially within the evangelical church and the Christian church, we don't talk about this a lot, but the reality is this. The act of adultery starts with, the, with a sexual act. That's where, that's where it starts, and that's, the, that's how we see the sin committed. But we also have to understand this, that sex is created and given to us by God. You can see right from the beginning in Genesis chapter 1 where God created sexuality. You can see Adam and Eve were created, and one, the man has a specific part, and a woman has a specific part. And we see it there, created there in the beginning. You see in Genesis chapter 2 where Adam and Eve are going to become one flesh, right? And that is to depict not only their marriage relationship, but also the sexual union they are going to have with one another. And so you can see, even from the very beginning, that sex is supposed to be within the confines of marriage. And we'll talk about marriage a lot here in a second. But we also need to understand this, and this we're just going to have to be with mature within our minds. But we also have to see from Scripture that sex is also something, again, within the confines of marriage for us to enjoy. Now, where do you get that from, Kenny? Where, are you, where is this coming from? It's coming from Scripture. If you look at the book of Song of Solomon, you see very erotic behavior taking place. Again, it's within the confines of a marriage between a man and a woman. But nonetheless, it's in there to, just as Solomon writes in the Song of Solomon, and again in Proverbs chapter 5, he even says that we are supposed to enjoy it. And what we see, even within the confines of the Song of Solomon, you see not only is there pleasure within it, but you also see attributes that are supposed to be obeyed within the confines of marriage, which are joy that comes from it, trust, vulnerability, pleasure, like I've said, but also love. That's what comes from this act. And we can see it straight from Scripture. And I would actually recommend that you write off to the side there to read, take for a moment and read parts of the Song of Solomon because it's right there in there. And it also allows us to see that when it's practiced in the, <clears throat> excuse me, within the confines of marriage, it's blessed. It's right before the eyes of the Lord. And so we understand the reality that yes, it is supposed to be for pleasure, but also we understand this. It's also for procreation as well. We see with, with the first couple, the Adam and Eve, they have what? Three children, right? Anybody name their three children? There you go. He gets a star in his report. And so we see that he, you know, he does procreate. They do have children. And we see that tempo set in the entirety of Scripture and as well as for humanity within itself. And that is the other reality that we see as well. But when we understand that sex is to be only for marriage and how it protects it and it cultivates it, then we can see, and I put this in your outline, while we have biblical verses like Leviticus 20, verse 10, that if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. It's that simple. God takes serious the sin of adultery. And that is why we also see within the New Testament, with the word sexual morality, we see that the Greek word porneia comes from that, which is a, another, even within the the New Testament, we see that, as I put in your outline, that even with the New Testament or porneia, where, like I said, we get our word um, pornographic from, it rules out any other type of sexual and moral behavior as well. The commandment rules out premarital sex and homosexual behavior. It rules against flirtation and rape and insect sexual, sexual abuse within a marriage or against a child. It covers everything, emotional relationships, everything like that, the seventh commandment identifies right out of the gate. And we have to understand this. And I know, listen, I know we don't talk about it a lot, and the word sex is very much a word that, you know, can bring us, can kind of pause for a second, make a raise our eyebrows. But the reality is this, sex is a gift from the Lord, but it's supposed to be practiced within the institution of marriage. That's the reality the Bible paints for us. But as we know as what happened. It doesn't take you long at all to realize that sex is sold. There are so many sinful behaviors in this world today, and as well as throughout the history of the world, where we see the sex industry 
constantly, it seems to me, advancing in so many ways and shapes and forms and faster than we realize. And so I was reading a statistic the other day. They were saying that even within the, uh, the, the, the um, uh, pornography industry, couldn't get the word out, and that has been one of the fastest growing industries, specifically during the time of COVID. I don't know if y'all saw that during, in Time Magazine, but that's just sad. It's just very sad that we see that. But we have to understand that it's, it's a reality that we live in. And it sells quickly because it affects deep within our souls and it's personal. But ladies and gentlemen, we have to see this. Anything outside of marriage, it's sin. It's sin. And we have to take it serious just as our Lord takes it serious. Which then allows us to see number two here why we need to understand that marriage is holy. And this is where we're going to spend a majority of our time tonight because marriage within the confines of the Bible, a biblical marriage, is very is holy, but it's also an institution that has ramifications that really reach beyond what we see and understand on a daily basis. Marriage is holy, but also marriage is a function in an institution that provides stability, it provides strength, it provides trust, but also, as we're going to talk about here in a second, it's also a window or a lens for us to see the Lord. And I'll talk about that here in a second here for a moment. But what we have to see is sex is for marriage, and it's to be enjoyed within the confines of marriage. And that's why God takes it serious, because God takes marriage seriously. And so when adultery takes place, it's an, it's an institution that he has established, marriage, in the beginning, that he says it's supposed to be holy and set apart. And so when adultery takes place, we sinned. And which is why, and we'll get to this in a second, is when you see this, and, and again the debate goes back and forth, but in the 1960s, a lot of researchers say that's when really you began to see this idea of the sexual revolution taking place. Now, it doesn't take you very long to see that whether it's the 1960s or even before that. But they, a lot of people say that it's at that time in the 60s where this idea of self-expression and free love and sexual expression take, really was taking place and taking hold within the lives of this world. And of course, it really was broadcasting faster than we realize through the medium of television. Now, of course, we saw it advance pretty quickly because out of television came computers and the internet and so forth and cell phones, like I was talking about earlier in my introduction. But nonetheless, we see that a lot of historians say it was in the 1960s where this idea of the revolution came forth. But listen, like I said earlier, it doesn't take you long, and you don't have to be looking back on history too far to see, honestly, this stuff's been going on way before the 1960s. You can look at cultures of the world. You can look at the Greeks and the Romans and to see that they established a tempo within their own society that really promoted sexual promiscuity outside of the confines of marriage. You can see Paul constantly trying to say to the Christians, do not live as the Gentiles do. Why? Because the Gentiles often had adulterous relationships so they could many times, as Paul addresses in Galatians, to get close to God. You see within the even uh, the Roman Empire, there were temples built and established for you to go to have fornication and sexual promiscuity to, to be advanced so that you could get, quote, closer to God. But the reality is this, though that was in the thousands of years ago, that stuff is still going on today, ladies and gentlemen. It's just brought and packaged in different forms and possibilities, whether we realize it or not. But what we have to understand is like us within our second point is that marriage is holy. And again, we have to go back to Adam and Eve to look for our example. Because what we see within the first couple in Genesis 1 and 2 is that you see Adam and Eve, they stay together until death. That's the tempo. That's the model that Adam and Eve set. If you go a little bit further on into Scripture, you can see with Abraham and Sarah in Genesis, you can see not only did they, were they together until uh, Sarah died, you remember? Because Abraham went on. But you also see that their marriage also provided stability, not only within their family, but also it provided economic stability, political stability in the land. You may remember the many wars that Abraham had to go and, and fight against. Remember when he rescued his nephew? right? People feared Abraham, right? But what the tone was set 
was because Abraham and Sarah were creating this order from God that was obviously setting an example for the people and the nations that they were encountering, all because of their marriage. You can even see further on into Scripture. You look at Ruth and Boaz. The whole idea behind Boaz redeeming Ruth, remember that? He had to go before the, the gates of the elders. He had to uh, say to the one redeemer, will you redeem her? And he says no, so therefore Boaz does it. He gives, they exchange, remember, their sandals to commence at the property, but most importantly, a marriage is going to be taking place. The whole situation there within Ruth chapter 3 and 4 is to show how much God is a stout, has counts marriage to be holy, but also how it provides order. It provides stability. It provides trust. All within marriage, two people coming together, and that's the implication that it sets. You think about that. There are far greater implications that go way beyond our understanding of when a man and a woman come together as husband and wife. And those examples of Abraham and Sarah and Ruth and Boaz and Adam and Eve are just a few. That's why we see constantly, you know, for example, I remember when, you know, when I was growing up in, in Newburn, I remember going to, I was probably 13, 14 or so. There was a couple of them in our church that were married 75 years. And the church came to celebrate them. They renewed their vows together. And, but I remember when the gentleman got up to, to, to speak, he said, the reason why we're here is to celebrate the testimony of God for 75 years. That's the crux right there of marriage that we see. And that's what we see from their example as well. But we also need to see this, and I put this in your outline as well. Even when you look at the New Testament, Colossians 3, Ephesians 5, look at the acts and the roles men and women are supposed to fill within the confines of marriage. There is purpose and meaning in the, and meaning with the example they are supposed to obey according to the Word of God. Stability. I said that word already a few times, but that's exactly what marriage provides. Stability. It's an example far greater than we can think or imagine at times. But what we also have to see, and this is in your outline as well, wow, Kenny, way to staple that and print that in a weird way. You see that? <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. Blame it on Kurt. He's in the back. Um, but nonetheless, I, that's fun. I don't know why I did that. Oh, well. It's to keep you on your toes. That's what it is. It keeps, it's to keep you on your toes. But what we have to see is though we're looking at Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, with the roles and responsibilities man and woman are supposed to play within the confines of marriage, but we also have to see that the example that marriage sets for us it's also a window for us, like I said earlier, to see God. That's what we need to understand. And what I mean by that is that when you look at Coloss excuse me, Exodus 20, verse 14, another example of why God forbids adultery is because the close communion, not only do the man and woman have, but also the picture that it shows us that Christ has with his church, that God has with his people. If you go to a wedding ceremony, so often, and I even say with the people I've married before, that you say this is a union or a covenant between a man and woman that's taking place, and the people here, but most importantly before God, is an example of Christ's union that he has with his church. And that union, of course, is the power of the gospel. That's what we see. That's the new covenant, keyword there, covenant that we see with the work, the toning work of Christ and his resurrection. And that's what it sets for us. The covenant that we see in Exodus 20 is the same covenant that we talked about in the very beginning of our sermon series, where we see the covenant that God had with Abraham, that I will never leave you or forsake you. It's still applicable to the people post-Exodus, here in Exodus 20. But the same covenant, that this idea of never leaving or forsaking us, like I said earlier, is of course shown in the perfect example of Christ has with us. But what we have to see and this is the reality that we need to know within our minds. When we commit adultery, it is ultimately a sin against the body of Christ. And where am I getting that? 1 Corinthians 6, 13 through 20. I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit. I'll go back to the Heidelberg Catechism. 
But I want to go ahead and hit this first because listen, read along with me. The body, however, is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? Listen to that. One with her in body. That union that we see there in the beginning in Genesis 1 and 2. For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. You see that again? One with the Lord. And then it goes on to say, you are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. The reality is this. When we commit adultery, we are sinning against the body of Christ. We are sinning against the Lord himself. Because the Holy Spirit lives inside us. We are temples. God dwells with us through his spirit. And so when the act takes place, we are committing against, really, the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That's the reality that we have to see when adultery takes place. I know I got a little ahead of myself, but I want you to see in the Heidelberg Catechism, question 108, regarding the seventh commandment. What does the seventh commandment teach us? All unchastity is cursed by God. Detest from the heart. We are to call to live disciplined lives within and outside, the key word there, of our holy marriage. Our holy marriage. Marriage is a mystery, as Paul says in Ephesians 5.32. But it is an example at the end of the day that Christ has with his church. Because when you look at the reality of 1 Corinthians 6, 13 through 20, it should allow us to see that when we commit adultery, it's not a solo act. You getting that from 1 Corinthians 6? It's not a solo act. Christ sees. You may remember, I remember this from when I was in high school from my youth group. We always live before an audience of one. I don't know if you ever heard that before, but that's exactly right. Especially when we realize as Christians, and if you are a Christian, to see that Christ, the Holy Spirit, dwells within us, the third person of the Trinity. The act of adultery is never alone. Never forget that. Never forget that. And we'll talk about here the implications in just a second because the reality is this. 1 Corinthians 6 sets a stark reality of, what, of the damage adultery can take on an individual. It's a sin against a holy God. But it's also sin against, a, it should be a holy marriage because, like I said, God established it and set it apart to be an example. When the two become one flesh and become man, uh, become husband and wife, the implications for us to see go far beyond our eyes. And I've said that already at least three times. But what we don't understand, and I've been naming some attributes as we go along, but when we come, when you see a married, two people coming as man and woman to be married, it's vital that it lasts because you've heard me say it's an example of loyalty and trust and joy and vulnerability, but also most importantly, to honor the Lord. That's why when adultery does take place here in the Christian church, so often there is public church discipline. Because the act of beginning married is a public institution, a lot of times you see when church discipline does take place, it happens publicly before the members of the congregation. I was talking to my father-in-law recently, I said recently, a couple of months ago now, probably about a couple within their church, and he was telling me that an affair took place, and the my, uh, my father-in-law and well as the church pastors went to this couple to try to reconcile and counsel, but this one spouse wanted nothing to do with it. And so they went off with the person they had an affair with, and they performed a public church discipline for that person. It was a reality. Now, granted, there was hope within that story because that person ended up coming back and repenting before the congregation, by the way, repenting before the congregation. But nonetheless, it was a public act of discipline that took place because marriage is a public institution. But as we know, it doesn't take long to realize and to Google pretty quickly the statistics that we see within marriages breaking down. 
I was reading just a few, and I'm not going to spot all of them off, but now it's well over 54% of marriages end up, in, end up in divorce. We see sometimes in other cultures and parts of the world that those statistics rise. We see and rise even higher within our military communities. Over 69% of marriages within the military community end up in divorce. That's just the sad reality we see. But, as it says in your outline, never forget that biblical marriage is a window for the Christian and the world to see. It provides so much for us, greater than we all, than we can understand at times. Which is why, F, we have to be careful. We have to be careful. You remember that kid's song? Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. For the Father up above is looking down on love. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Well, if you know that song, it goes on to say, be careful, little mouth, what you say. Be careful, little ears, what you hear. And then be careful, what you do. It's amazing what a kid's song can teach an adult, can't it? But that little children's song is very much where we need to go next, which is, be careful. We have to be careful. Ephesians 4 reminds us, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Matthew 6:22, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. And where am I getting this? Open up your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. Flip over to the right with me to Matthew chapter 5. And I'm going to read verses 27. Look at that. I was on John 5. Grant will be proud. Already ready for this next Sunday sermon. Let me read Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to that everyone who looks at a woman with a lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one, mem- one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body to go into hell. We have to be careful of what we are looking at, what we are saying, what we are hearing. We have to be careful of the lies of what we do. Because the Father up above is looking. But as we can see in Matthew chapter 5, adultery, yes, it is a physical act. But also we have to see lust is the same implication we see in Exodus to Matthew 5 of adultery as well. Jesus is teaching in Matthew chapter 5 that if you have a lustful thought against a man or a woman that is not your spouse, you are an adulterer. To look at a man or woman with lust to think of the sexual possibilities you can have with that person is sin. The reality is this. When you allow lust to take hold within your mind and within your heart, what you have really done is you have abandoned the view that that person is made in the image of God, and you've created them to be an object to be worshipped. And what's obviously showing within your heart is that God is not there, and you're trying to seek something to worship. So therefore you lust. That's the reality that we see here within Matthew chapter 5. Because, listen, Jesus' teaching here is just like what Grant was talking about in John chapter 5 earlier today. He's refuting what the Pharisees have been teaching. In fact, Grant and I, I didn't realize he was going to bring the mission with him. But when I was looking at it over the last few weeks, I found that the reason why, one of the main reasons why, Jesus was refuting this because they have totally turned the seventh commandment upside down because in their law, they permitted for you, the man or the woman to have adultery. And here is one, for example, if your spouse wouldn't do certain sexual things, you could commit adultery. That's what they taught. That's blasphemy. That's sinful. And they were allowing that to take place. And so, that's when you see Jesus come in and say, no, that's wrong. Yes, that false teaching is wrong, but it has to start somewhere. 
is what Jesus is really getting to. And he's getting to what? The what? The heart. That's what he's identifying as the issue. The heart of the problem is the heart. When we allow our eyes to linger, our minds to wander, it's easily going to go quickly here to here. That's always the path it's going to take when we allow just for a second, just for that border to get there against that man or woman. And we begin to think about those sexual, uh, those thoughts or that lustful thoughts or intentions with that man or woman. And always will go here. It's like the quote I've said here before, and I've used it ever since I heard it when I was a young man. Because adultery is a dangerous thing. But as Charles Stanley says, you reap what you sow, more than you sow, and later than you sow. That's the ramifications that adultery, excuse me, lust can take you down. I put in here a quote from here by Sinclair Ferguson towards the bottom of your page. He says this, adultery actually involves the breach of several of God's commandments and involves disobedience of the specific command that forbids it. Therefore, it involves disobedience of the Lord whom we are to worship. It involves thefts of another person's companion as a result, as a result of coveting the, what belongs to another. Far from being exciting as a lifestyle, its pleasure is that of theft and idolatry. It breaks many commands, the act of adultery. So that's why Jesus, and starting in verse 29, gives the same implications almost of Leviticus 20, at least the same heart behind it and the, the tone. That remember we saw in Leviticus 20, that adultery needs to be put to death. Jesus says, do whatever you can to flee lust. Cut off your hand or gouge out your eye. Flee it, because it's a dangerous, dangerous road. I put in here again another question of the Heidelberg Catechism. Question 109 regarding the seventh commandment. Does it, it says there, I put in your outline, forbid more than adultery or shameful sins. It says, since we are body and soul and temples of God's will, the Holy Spirit, it is of God's will, we are to keep ourselves pure and holy, Forbidding, look, gestures, of words, thoughts, desires, whatever entices to unchastity. Anything. Goes back to those implications how the seventh commandment is far greater and reaches further than we realize. Again, flirtation, homosexual behavior, um, premarital sex, all those things are against the seventh commandment. But the reality is this. So often, this is on the third page, which you have to flip right for. Um, but what we have to understand is that lust is dangerous. And so often we don't think it is because so often we just keep it to ourselves. We think no one will see. Again, it goes back to with our audience of one. But what we have to see is this. If we allow lust to take place within our hearts, it's just like Solomon said in Proverbs 6. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? No. No. Being honest, if you think lust is not dangerous, you're going to catch on fire pretty quick. And that's the reality that we have to see. But we also need to understand this. God judges the sexual, immor sexual immorality that takes place. Look with me in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-10. through 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Look, it says right there, neither the sexual immoral will inherit the kingdom of God. Hebrews 13, 4, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexual immoral and the adulterous. We will be judged and the sexual immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's just that true. That's what the Bible says. But listen to this. Take hope. Take hope, ladies and gentlemen, and for those watching online. We can take hope because we have a good and gracious God. We have a good and gracious God who, just like the King David, when he committed adultery, and remember when Nathan confronted him, he repented. We have to see just what David said. Create in me a pure heart. And we also have to see the reality of this. He says, purge me, O God. Cleanse me with hyssop, he goes on to say. 
And that's what we have to do. We can take hope because God will forgive. If you've committed adultery, whether an act or with our minds and our hearts, God will forgive us. It is not the unforgivable sin. It is not the unforgivable sin. And so we have to see how good and gracious our God is because he does forgive. He is just to forgive us. And that's how sweet and tender he is. But on the same token, we also need to see that through the power of God, he also provides for us the opportunity to flee temptation as well. Let me say that again. He also provides for us the power to flee temptation when it comes. When it comes, by the way. When it comes, here's some practical applications you can write down. When the opportunity or the temptation to come to lust or adultery takes is starting to form, pray. Recall and meditate on God's word. Maybe you need to seek help from another person. Live above reproach. Here are some other practical ways. Flee very much what we are looking at. Throw away your computer. Get a new phone. Flee idle time, for that is the devil's handiwork. Watch what you're looking at on TV. End a relationship that you feel is getting too close, too awkward within someone that is not your spouse. Flee like Joseph did. Remember what happened when Potiphar tried to commit, you know, to bring him into her bed? Remember he, he fled, he, uh, she ripped a part of his clothing off. And what did he say? How could I sin against God? That's the heart that we are called to have, right? Just like Joseph. And so, see that God also provides the means to flee temptation. I put in there an acronym that John Piper wrote many, many years ago. I don't remember when he wrote it, but um, it's in there. It's the acronym of Anthem. And it is, um, it's just, it's a go-to. And um, I'm just going to read a few of them briefly. A, avoid as much as possible the sights and situations that arouse unfitting desire. N, say no to every lossful thought. Listen to that within five seconds. T, turn the mind. H, hold the promise of Christ firmly, it says in your mind. E, enjoy superior satisfaction, which is anything holy and pure. Think of the things above, like Paul says in Philippians 4. And M, move away from unuseful activity or idleness for vulnerable behaviors. Great acronym that we can see here. And then number three, I'm going to end our time briefly here. I want us to see this. Relationships matter. Relationships matter. I'm going to end our point briefly to state something that you probably have had on your mind within the seventh commandment. And the reality is this. Relationships matter. When you think about even friendships, you think about maybe the relationships you have with your parents, cousins, maybe coworkers, whatever the case may be, you think of how special they are. I can think of even a few of my old childhood best friends, you know, thinking about the good times we have and a few of them I'm still friends with today that we can still call and text and catch up and college roommates, for example, that you can check in and, and see what's going on in their life and continue to have great camaraderie and friendship. You think about those examples and how just the, 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 how they minister to you in your own life. But when you think about marriage and how it's supposed to be holy and sacred, you can see then how the relationship that even we see with the first couple with Adam and Eve, yes, they had a mandate and a job to do, but also what you see is that they were together. They were together. And the implications of them being together had far-reaching applications and imperatives that we are seeing today on December 12th, 2021. Relationships matter. I've been describing to you throughout this time, attributes within a marriage. I gave them with you in the confines of, of uh, sexual, mar- uh, sexual activity within the confines of marriage. But those attributes are good in the sight of the Lord when they are practiced biblically. Of trust, of joy, of love. But the key word there is trust. When adultery takes place, trust is broken. 
Merriam-Webster defines trust as this, belief that someone or something is reliable, good, honest, and effective. When adultery takes place in one way, shape, or form, you are saying, I don't trust you, or I don't trust the institution. It's a great reality, isn't it? It's a hard word, hard word for me, hard word for you to hear, but that's the reality of, of what happens when adultery does take place. A wise man, when I was growing up, said to me and my buddy about something else, but he said this, if someone is willing to lie to you, they'll steal from you. True, isn't it? If someone's willing to lie to you, they'll steal from you. But the reality is this. I put in here a quote from Doug Wilson. He's commenting on Leviticus 20. But he says this, Certainly an adulterer is worthy of death, and a man who will betray his wife, keyword here, will betray anyone and anything. Trust is a precious thing, isn't it? Trust is a very precious thing. And it's essential, as I put in your outline, to any relationship, but especially within the confines of marriage. Adultery, like Doug Wilson said, is treason against the family and God, and God does hate it. Another way of saying it is this. The way you treat your spouse shows how you treat others. It's the reality of, of what that example and as well as that temperament shows. And so, as we're closing in our time tonight, I want us to see the reality and the severity of how God takes the seventh commandment, how serious he takes the act of adultery and how it is sin. Both the physical act and as well as the mental act of lust, God takes very seriously. And I pray that it's convicted all of us, that we can take great hope to know that we can continue to grow in the grace of the Lord and flee it and to protect our marriages, protect sex within the confines of marriage. Because listen, Marriage is under attack daily. We see it left and we see it right. People are looking to the Christian church to celebrate marriage, to cultivate marriage, to protect marriage. That is why, again, I even say when I marry somebody that there's not only a charge between the boy and the girl, but there's also a charge to the people here witnessing the institution coming together. That they are here not only coming to, to celebrate or possibly to have a good time, but I always charge the congregation or the, the members that are sitting there to say, hey, listen, you keep them accountable. You pray for them, right? You help them in times of need. That's, that's exactly what we are supposed to do as to, to call, like I said earlier with that quote from Riken, to protect marriage. And so I put in there, as we're closing our time together, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I don't think we can end in a better way. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of the lust, like I was saying earlier, of the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger of all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, Whoever disregards this, disregards, keyword here, not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Disregards, not man, but God. So let me do this. Let me pray for us. And then like we always do, I'll leave um, the opportunity for Q&A, like we do in our evening services. And there's a microphone right there in the center aisle that you can come up and ask a question or pay, possibly state um, a comment or something that the Lord has brought to your mind through his word or as you've been following along. But let me close our time in prayer and then I'll open the floor tonight. So bow your heads with me in prayer. Father, you are holy, holy, holy. The seraphim, Constantly, as we see in Isaiah 6, going back and forth. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Father, you are glorious. You are holy. Father, you are sovereign. 
Father, you also are love. Lord, it's to you that we commit our trust, our lives. Father, the example that marriage is to us, it has far greater implications than we can realize. It has consequences that we don't even see a lot of times within our lives that I pray one day maybe we can understand more fully. But Lord, the example that marriage sets for us is that it's a view to see you. It's a window. And Father, as a husband and wife gives themselves fully to each other, Father, is an example how we are, are taught, called to fully give, give ourselves and our lives to you. We are to have fidelity to you and to your truth. Father, I pray that as we are studying your word tonight, Lord, continue to help us to honor marriage, to keep it holy and to sacred. Father, I pray for the marriages in this room, in this congregation, watching online, that you will continue to sustain them and protect them. Father, I pray for the ones maybe who have lost a spouse, Lord, that the example that it, their marriage may have set. And Lord, I pray for even the ones, Lord, who are going through marital difficulties or possible divorce or whatever the case may be, Lord. I pray for comfort, pray for peace, protection in this season of life. Father, I pray marriage is under attack. We see it left and we see it right. And I pray, Lord, for your protection upon him. I pray also, Lord, that you will help us to flee temptation. Lord, help us to flee the lustful thought, the word, the um, the flirtation, the view on our cell phones, TV, computer, whatever the case may be, help us to flee it, to cut it off immediately and run away from it as fast as we can. Because Lord, like it says in your word, it's like a fire that we, that we think we can keep from our chests and not catching on fire. But in fact, the reality is this, we will easily set ourselves on fire if we play with sexual immoral and sexual perversion behavior. So Father, keep us from temptation and deliver us from evil. Father, we pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.